Hi, I'm Allison from the Resolved Mysteries Podcast and Unsolved Mysteries Podcast. You're listening to Apple for the Teacher Podcast, a podcast about true crime in schools. So join Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host, as she presents the bad apples within the school system. You will hear school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable, and outright bizarre. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode. My name is Anna Thomas. I'm a primary school teacher, and this podcast is about true crime within schools. This is episode number 60, and today's story is one where a crime was committed, but there is a lot of conjecture about what happened. There is a lot of information that I will present to you, and you can make your own judgments. But first, let's do our usual shout-outs. Hello to Josie Musa. El Hayek, T.C. Ebru Karul Basaran, Antonio Rodriguez Barril, Zainep Ergalujalan, Catherine Boland Boenka, and Isay Yilmaz Tamturk. Hello, everyone. And also in each episode, I do a country of focus. So I look at my podcast stats and see where people are listening from. And I can see that people are listening from the country of Germany. So let's find out a few interesting facts about Germany. In Germany, going to university is free, and this has now been extended to international students as well. I love this because there are very many disadvantaged people who would be more than capable of going to university, so this is just great for inclusivity. The Germans are very particular with what they name babies. It is German law that a person's gender must be obvious by their first name and no strange names are allowed. So when a baby is born, the registration office must approve the name. If it is rejected, parents have to reapply, which is costly. So people will choose traditional names. So I guess they're not going to use any of those celebrity names like Apple and some of those other crazy ones. The government pays for disabled people to have access to sex workers. There is a city in Germany where there are roadside vending machines where prostitutes have to buy a ticket to work. If they don't, they could get fined or banned. The orange soda Fanta is used as an ingredient of a popular cake in Germany called the Fanta Kuchen, which translates to Fanta cake. And this last one is very curious for me living in Australia. In Germany, they believe that fresh air through an open window can cause achy joints or the flu. My windows are always open, even in winter, as our winters are very mild. Of course, we do have screens to help keep the flies and bugs out. But I just could not imagine being confined to a house without fresh air. So now let's get into the story. Let's have a preview first. It's called Quick as a Flash. A crime was committed, but was the right person convicted? This story took place near Dallas, Texas in the US in 1985. Joe and Mickey Bryan were a married couple who had known each other since elementary school. They had begun dating when both of them were studying master's degrees in education. Joe went on to be a high school principal and Mickey became an elementary school teacher. Joe and Mickey fully immersed themselves into their teaching and the lives of their students, helping families when money was short, 
and trying to reach those students who were reluctant learners. In the evenings, Joe would help Mickey grade papers and their lives constantly involved discussions about their schools. It was clear to all that they were dedicated to their profession and loved children, even though they were never able to have their own. It was common in the small town to see them walking together in the evenings, hand in hand. Mickey's daily routine was to arrive at school at 7am each day, a quiet time when she was able to prepare her lessons, which is exactly what I do. On one particular day, a teacher colleague, Susan, walked past Mickey's classroom expecting to see her, but the room was dark and locked. Susan thought this was unusual, as Mickey was known to be a very punctual person. She thought maybe she was running off photocopies in another part of the school and decided to come back later. But at 8am, Mickey still hadn't arrived. Susan then thought maybe she was absent and went to see the principal, asking if there was a substitute teacher coming that day. He wasn't aware that she would be absent and asked the secretary to try to call Mickey at home, but no one answered. They knew that Mickey's husband was out of town at a conference, so they phoned Mickey's parents instead. They had seen her the day before, but they didn't know where she might be. The principal drove to Mickey's house. He noticed the garage door was up and saw Mickey's car inside. He knocked on the door, but no one answered. Then Mickey's parents arrived with a spare key and they entered the house, calling out Mickey's name. They proceeded to the master bedroom and a shocking scene confronted them. Mickey was on the bed. There was blood everywhere on the bed, the ceiling and on the walls. The nightgown she was wearing was pulled up and she was naked from the waist down. Mickey had been shot dead. Meanwhile, Mickey's husband Joe was 120 miles away at a principal's conference. He was informed about what happened to Mickey and became inconsolable. He was taken to his hotel room by colleagues where he lay down on the bed. Two of Joe's colleagues from his school then arrived to take him home. Joe sat in the back of the car with his head down and cried. When Joe arrived at the house, he was asked some questions by the police, including whether there were any guns in the house. Joe said he kept a .357 pistol in the bedroom, which he used for snakes that sometimes roamed around the yard. Joe was then driven to Mickey's parents' house, where he said over and over, what am I going to do without Mickey? It was determined that Mickey had been shot four times, once in the abdomen and three times in the head. It appeared that one shot to the side of her head had been fired at close range. Joe's gun was missing and there were small lead pellets found, which the police concluded came from his gun. Some of Mickey's jewellery was also gone. They weren't able to find any bloody fingerprints or footprints and there didn't appear to be any forced entry. A cigarette butt had been found but neither Mickey or Joe smoked. It appeared that it was a robbery that turned to homicide. Joe was interviewed by a Texas ranger and provided the following information. Joe said everything seemed normal in the days prior to Mickey's death. He had called her at around 9pm the night before she was found from his hotel room at the conference he was attending. 
He said she had been grading school papers and he had been watching the Country Music Awards. Along with the jewellery that was taken during the murder, the police also found that $1,000 was missing from a box where Joe and Mickey kept spare cash. However, the police noted that the box was dusty and so didn't appear to have been recently touched. Joe couldn't explain this, saying he thought there was money in the box. The town of Clifton where they lived had a population of about 3,000 people. As well as Mickey, there had been a murder four months earlier of a 17-year-old girl named Judy Whitley. She had been sexually assaulted and the case was still unsolved. So the murder of Mickey in their small and quiet community alarmed the residents. Susan, the teacher who first noticed that Mickey wasn't at school, began staying at her sister's house, keeping a gun for protection. Four days after her murder, Mickey's brother Charlie flew in from Florida. He arranged to meet with a friend who was a former FBI agent, Bud Saunders, to help to look into Mickey's murder. Charlie asked Joe if he could use his car while he was in town and Joe obliged. So Charlie and Saunders drove around discussing Mickey's murder. Now at this point it needs to be mentioned that Charlie did not tell Joe about the former FBI agent being with him. At some point the men had got out of their car and got mud on their boots. Charlie opened the trunk of Joe's car to get something to clean the boots and found a flashlight that appeared to have blood specks on the lens. They decided to go back to the house to inform the police about the flashlight as they thought the police may have still been at the house conducting their investigation, but no one was there. However, the door was unlocked and they decided to go inside. With no one there, they drove to a payphone and called the Texas Rangers. The police then inspected the vehicle. They noticed there was no sign of mud from the men's boots inside Joe's car. They said they had cleaned the mud off with a pocket knife. The flashlight was taken to the crime lab for examination. After being inspected and photographed, the car was released back to Charlie. He and Bud then returned the car and left it in Joe's driveway at around 4am. Both men left, boarding flights back to their homes. Joe had been unaware of all that had transpired regarding the flashlight and the men entering his house. The next day, Joe drove his car to get gas and when he opened the trunk to get a fuel additive, he found a brown bag that had $850 in it. After Mickey's shocking murder, he had forgotten that he had taken the money from the box in the bedroom some two weeks earlier. The police had searched the car and had not found the money. Therefore, they concluded that Joe was lying. The blood on the flashlight turned out to be type O, which was the same as Mickey's. DNA testing had not been available at the time, but the result didn't prove to be important as half of the population has type O blood. But it was concluded that the blood must have been Mickey's as Joe didn't have type O. There were also small plastic particles that had been found on the flashlight, which may have come from the gunshot pellets found at the crime scene. 
the police believed they had enough evidence to point to Joe being the murderer and he was arrested. The town was totally shocked with the news that Joe had been arrested. Here are some of the comments that were made. He was an instinctively caring and compassionate person. I couldn't imagine him hurting anyone, let alone murdering his wife. I knew Joe would never hurt Mickey. He adored her. There was no scenario in which Joe killing Mickey made any sense to me. He was Mickey's champion and her protector. I would have hated to have been the person who crossed Mickey and had to deal with Joe. He was calm and easygoing. I never once saw him lose his temper. And here is what a student of Joe's said. I remember feeling that there was a terrible mistake. He took a profound interest in all of our lives. He was able to reach teenagers in a way that few adults could. There was a deep bond there, like there would be with a great coach. He was beloved. Mickey's co-worker Susan was interviewed by police and she was very surprised by what she was asked. The officer said there were rumours that Joe was gay and asked her if she knew anything about this. Susan knew nothing about Joe being gay and thought it was ridiculous. This same question was asked to Joe's friends and co-workers. This questioning had resulted from the police having discovered a Chippendales pin-up calendar in Joe's car. Joe explained that he and Mickey had bought it for a single friend of theirs. However, the police formed the theory that Joe was gay and that he killed Mickey when she discovered his secret. The investigators searched through Joe's phone records looking for evidence of a secret gay life, but the records didn't appear to show anything unusual. The small town were now aware of the gay rumours and stories started circulating that Joe had had a relationship with a male student. Joe was released on $50,000 bond and began working with his attorneys in preparation for his trial. One of his friends stated, he just wanted the whole thing cleared up. His attitude was, let's get this behind us so that we can go and look for who killed Mickey. Mickey's brother Charlie filed a lawsuit to prevent Mickey's estate being used for Joe's defence. Mickey's parents also cut off all communication with Joe. Mickey and Joe had also been churchgoers and the church pastor called him saying that the churchgoers were not comfortable having Joe continue to attend church. At the trial, the prosecution's case centred around the flashlight, as there were no witnesses, no motive or forensic evidence that could tie Joe to the crime scene. It was noted that Joe's fingerprints were found on the flashlight, and Joe had always conferred that the flashlight was his. He said he usually kept it in the bedroom, and therefore wasn't sure how it got into the trunk of his car. Although the blood was the same type as Mickey's, there was no way to confirm that it was hers. Evidence was also presented by the chemist who examined the fragments of shell casings on the flashlight, stating that they appeared to show similar properties to the fragments found at the scene. There were also two human hairs found in the trunk of Joe's car that did not match his or Mickey's. A palm print was also found on the headboard of the bed, which didn't match Joe's. 
Mickey's palm prints had been taken during her autopsy but had been done incorrectly and therefore couldn't be compared with the headboard prints. Joe had also kept a pair of gloves in his trunk and the prosecution asserted these were used in the murder. As the chemist said, they contained a minute amount of blood. However, there was not enough blood to be able to determine a blood type. The police had been able to verify that a call was made from Joe's hotel room to Mickey at 9pm the night before her murder. Others at the conference confirmed that they had seen Joe the next morning when Mickey was found dead. Next, Mickey's brother Charlie took the stand and was asked why he decided to hire a private investigator. He explained that the funeral home director, who was handling Mickey's funeral, suggested that he hire the investigator, stating, An insurance company had called to verify her death about paying an insurance claim. Whether that triggered him to suggest to me that I should get an investigator or whether he thought that it might not have been handled thoroughly, I don't know. So Charlie then contacted Bud Saunders and together they drove around town looking for answers and that's when they found the flashlight in the trunk. The defence pressed Charlie about how he could prove that he didn't plant the flashlight there himself given that he filed a lawsuit to claim Mickey's estate if Joe was convicted. He claimed that he did find it there and that he can't prove that he didn't put it there but he adamantly restated that he found it there. Next, the chief investigator testified that a pair of Joe's underwear were found in the bedroom wastebasket and that they were stained with semen matching Joe's blood type. He also stated that the underwear was moist, making them stick together, implying that Joe must have been in the house not long before Mickey was found. The defence noted that the investigator's own report didn't mention anything about the underwear being moist, yet there he was testifying that they were. Next, the prosecution called a witness from the hotel that Joe had been staying at during the conference. The hotel employee testified that Joe returned to the hotel after he was out on bail. Joe had supposedly claimed that a security guard had asked him for his hotel room key as they were trying to catch a housekeeper who was stealing from guests. However, there was no evidence of this and the prosecutor suggested that Joe made up the story to divert attention away from himself. Next, there was evidence presented by a man named Robert Thorman who was a bloodstain pattern analyst. This work was formally carried out by crime labs, but in the years leading up to Joe's trial, it was police departments that began providing training to their officers. However, the officers lacked the advanced scientific skills required. Thorman had completed a 40-hour training course only months before Mickey's murder. However, the jury was unaware of this. Thorman claimed that the very small specks of blood on the front lens of the flashlight was caused by blowback, where blood had travelled from a target to the flashlight and it was unmistakably caused by a shooting that occurred at close range, as it was determined that Mickey had been shot. He added that blood splatter 
only travels a certain distance and that therefore the presence of the flashlight fitted with the assertion that the crime was committed at close range. So Thorman was in no doubt that the flashlight was in the bedroom and he also added that the lack of blood on the handle meant that someone had been holding it when the blood was sprayed onto the front lens. Now I have to question this. So the killer had a gun in one hand and a flashlight in the other. So why would Joe be holding the flashlight and what role did it play? Had he hit her with it? But I didn't read anything in any of the information about her being struck by anything. Next, the trial discussed the lack of blood found in other areas of the house or in Joe's car. Thorman's explanation was that the killer cleaned up the scene and changed his clothes and shoes before leaving the house. Joe himself was the next to take the stand. He spoke about his devotion to his wife, Mickey, stating, We never gave each other any reason or any doubt about our feeling and our love for each other. He testified that he never left the hotel after speaking to Mickey that night and that he had also attended a session at the conference the next morning at 8.30. Joe stated over and over that he didn't kill his wife, saying, I don't understand any of this, never have from the very beginning. The prosecution's closing argument stated the following. Mickey didn't go to bed and leave that house unlocked that night. She locked the door and a man came in with a key and after all hell broke loose in that bedroom, he cleaned up, changed clothes, wiped up the lavatory, threw his clothes in the bag, walked out that front door, went right back walking into the front door of the Hyatt Hotel, whistling Dixie. The jury deliberated for four hours, with the following verdict being read in the courtroom. We, the jury, find the defendant, Joe D. Bryan, guilty of murder. Joe received a sentence of 99 years. After two years in jail, Joe was released on a technicality, but was not exonerated of the crime. Fault had been found with the trial process. Joe's defence team had evidence that refuted the testimony that Mickey's death was worth $300,000 to Joe. The insurance agent provided information that it was valued at about half of that amount. Although it had no effect on Joe's guilt or innocence, the judge in the trial had denied the defence the opportunity to present this evidence. As a result, Joe was free until a new trial was conducted. In the second trial, the same witnesses testified, and it was basically a rerun of the first trial. The guilty verdict was again delivered with a sentence of 99 years. While Joe was in jail, the case wasn't forgotten by the small town of Clifton, particularly not by one man. Leon Smith was the editor-in-chief of the local newspaper, The Clifton Record. His newspaper had covered the case from start to finish. You heard earlier of the unsolved case of the 17-year-old girl, Judy Whitley, who had been murdered just months before Mickey. Her father had been relentless in looking for answers to his daughter's death, as he had lost faith in law enforcement. That was when he approached Smith at the newspaper, asking if he would help. His idea was to contact the TV show Unsolved Mysteries in the hope that they might cover the case. 
and he also suggested that Mickey's death be investigated too. Smith agreed to help and decided to write to Joe to see if he would talk to him. Joe responded, saying, I have never had anything to hide and still don't. If this could help the Whitley family and me, then surely God has answered some prayers. I appreciate your efforts in this more than you can possibly understand. Smith contacted the Clifton police chief and requested access to the case files, which was granted. He sifted through the evidence, thoroughly absorbing himself into all aspects of the case. Next, he paid a visit to Joe in prison. Joe told Smith the following about what happened. He was at a loss why his brother-in-law didn't just consult him about hiring the private investigator. Why couldn't the three of them have worked together? He also spoke about how law enforcement ignored various clues, such as the cigarette butt and the unidentified fingerprints. He said, they had to convict somebody, anybody, so they went for me. Joe finished the interview by saying, I miss encouragement, a compliment of a job well done, the touch of another human being. You have no idea the loneliness that a person can feel in here. Mickey was my life. I have wanted to die every day because of the hurt and humiliation, the embarrassment, the accusations that are false, the injustice that's been done. Now, when Smith said he would help with Joe's case, his next action certainly proved how serious he was. He decided to attend a course in bloodstain pattern analysis to gain a better understanding of the training that police officers received. As we have seen, it was the blood splatter testimony of the police officer that helped to convict Joe. The course lasted for a week, and Smith goes on to explain what the training involved, which is quite lengthy, so I will just summarise by saying that he felt there was much room for error. Smith was alarmed by some of the things the instructor had said, such as, You won't be walking out of here an expert. You'll know just enough to be dangerous. He added that the class was just an introduction and that they would have to complete an advanced course and a mentorship program before they could be certified as experts. This made Smith think about the many judges across the country who allowed police officers with this training to testify as experts, as happened in Joe's case. Smith completed the course and received a certificate of training. Everyone in the class passed, and the instructor said that even if they had failed, they would still receive a certificate, adding that rarely did anyone fail. Smith's next step was to get the opinion of two well-respected forensic scientists. They examined all of the blood splatter report by Thorman. They saw issue with the flashlight, saying, it was an isolated piece of evidence found in isolation and without context. Because it was not recovered at the crime scene, its history is completely unknown. We don't know when the blood got onto it or when it was placed in the trunk. They also added that something else other than a gun could have caused the patterns. The flashlight was found in the car, not at the crime scene. Therefore, it wasn't possible to determine how the blood got onto it. 
They also questioned the assertion that blood splatter only travels a certain distance, saying that this depends on a number of variables. Smith presented the information he had gathered to the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. However, they did not proceed with the case. But Smith was not deterred and continued working feverishly on Joe's case. It was while Smith was talking to the Clifton police chief that he shared some information about the 17-year-old girl, Judy Whitley. The chief said that the prime suspect had been one of their own police officers, Dennis Dunlap. After her murder, he had quickly resigned and left town. It was noted that he knew details of the crime that only the investigators knew. Dunlap had also had a history of harassing women when on patrol. After learning more about the two cases, Smith became more sceptical about the local law enforcement. Smith contacted Dunlap, saying he was contacting people in the girl's murder case and asked if he would answer a few questions for an article he was writing. Dunlap's responses were brief and subsequent contact made by Smith was ignored. Some time then passed and then Smith was alerted to the fact that Dunlap had committed suicide. Following the death, the police renewed their investigation into Dunlap. Associates of Dunlap's disclosed that he had confided in them that he indeed had killed the girl. The police then declared the case solved. Smith also heard other information about Dunlap that he had allegedly bragged that he and Mickey had been together on the night she was murdered. After serving 20 years, Joe became eligible for parole, but it was denied, despite having a perfect disciplinary record. Then in 2010, after serving almost 25 years, parole was denied again. By this time, he was 70 and had a heart condition requiring a pacemaker. In 2010, Joe's case was looked at by an attorney named Walter Reeves. He chose to focus on wrongful conviction cases and those with flawed forensic evidence. In the past, he had been able to successfully overturn convictions and free people. Upon looking at Joe's case, he was struck by the circumstantial nature and what appeared to him to be a lack of scientific rigour in the blood analysis. To date, the appeals filed had been denied and the only other option was to file a writ of habeas corpus to persuade the courts to review the case. However, they would need new evidence. So, Reeves made a court request to conduct new DNA analysis of the cigarette butt, the flashlight and Joe's underwear. After the analysis was complete... Reeves noted a sentence in the report which stated, A presumptive test for blood was negative on the lens. In simple terms, this meant that it could not be determined if the flecks on the flashlight were actually blood or not. So, this new test, 27 years after the murder, was conducted with the latest advances in DNA technology, but there was still no proof that it was or wasn't blood. Next, a second-year law student named Jessica Freud began helping Reeves with Joe's case. 
After reading the trial transcript, she noted, I couldn't believe that someone had been convicted on so little. Jessica would graduate and become a practicing lawyer. And then she, Reeves and Smith began working together on Joe's case. They were granted access to the Clifton Police Department records of the two murder cases of Mickey and the 17-year-old girl, Judy. Smith had previously tried to access these files but was denied. They found an interview with the ex-wife of the prime suspect, Dunlap, who had hung himself. She described Dunlap as being terrifying and having unpredictable behaviour. He had shot the children's rabbits dead and had threatened her a number of times. The ex-wife also stated that Dunlap had bragged about having an affair with Mickey. She said, All he told me was that he dated her. He dropped her off that night or that evening and they had said they were going to break up. They found no evidence that this statement from the ex-wife had ever been followed up by the investigators. After discovering this new evidence regarding Dunlap, Reeves and Jessica submitted a writ that Joe should be entitled to another trial. Two years ago, in 2018, a surprising turn of events occurred. Thorman, the police officer whose blood evidence convicted Joe, submitted a sworn affidavit to the court stating the following. My conclusions were wrong. Some of the techniques and methodology were incorrect. Therefore, some of my testimony was not correct. In that same year, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which investigates the misuse of forensic evidence, made a statement as follows. Bloodstain pattern analysis used to convict Brian was not accurate or scientifically supported. This prompted the commission to develop a new licensing program for crime scene analysis. Now we come to this year, 2020. Joe had been denied parole seven times previously. However, in March this year, he became a free man at the age of 79. The parole board did not provide a reason for their change of heart. Upon his release, Joe went to stay with his brother in Houston, Texas. So what type of world has Joe returned to? Back in the 1980s, there were no cell phones and the internet. You would imagine that he would be so keen to have his freedom and be able to do normal things again. However, one thing stood in his way. COVID-19. Can you believe it? At that time, Houston had a stay-at-home order, so it was like Joe left one prison and returned to another. Here is what Joe said. I was told by one of the captains in Huntsville this morning that there is a lot of family and friends and a lot of people out there and just don't be hugging everybody and keep my distance because of the coronavirus. Well, that is like telling a dog to stay out of the meat house. The family were unable to have a large gathering to welcome him home, so his release was celebrated with little fanfare. And can you believe that at the time of his release, cases of COVID-19 were confirmed in some Texas prisons? Given Joe's age and heart condition, the timing of his release couldn't have been more critical. Joe says he could have been released earlier if he had confessed, but here is what he said. I think if I had admitted to doing it, I would have been out years ago. 
when I was first eligible for parole in 1996, and it's been 14 years since then. I did 14 years extra, but I didn't do it and I am not going to admit to something that I didn't do. We proved in a court of law that several people were not telling the truth and that others were wrong and that I was innocent and they don't want to admit that. That is their problem. And here is what Joe says about being in prison but being innocent. You can do several things. You can be mad at the world every day and be hateful to everybody and be a very angry person or you can act like you are naturally. That's what I tried to do. Yes, I was angry and I was mad at God about it. I thought he was punishing me for something else that I had done. But then I got to the point where I just turned myself over to God. I turned everything over to him and I let him deal with it and he helped me to get through it. I have depended on Jesus Christ to comfort me and protect me and he has done an amazing job of doing it. This is a very good day and I am so thankful. As already mentioned, the police officer who gave the blood splatter testimony, Thorman, admitted that he had been wrong. Here is what Joe said about that. I was elated and humbled about the fact that it had to be difficult for him to admit that he was wrong, and I appreciated him for doing that. I'm hoping his confession that he was wrong will help other people incarcerated who had junk science that convicted them. But you also have to realise he didn't have the proper training to do what he did. How amazing is this that he didn't blame him? Such an indication of Joe's character despite all he had been through. And now I'd like you to hear some audio of Joe talking about who he thinks killed Mickey. I personally think that Dennis Dunlap killed Mickey. No, I do not think Mickey would go with him. I think he may have pursued her. And I think he saw an opportunity. He knew I was going to be gone. His friends knew I was going to be gone. I think when he told his ex-wife that he just could not be in prison and that he committed suicide and hung himself and he admitted to killing Judy Whitley and he admitted to being with Mickey the night she was killed, I think that tells the story. And I don't think that anyone in law enforcement in Bosque County wanted to hear that side of what happened because that was mean they made a terrible mistake with me and they were willing to sacrifice me for their own integrity and security. Doesn't Joe seem like just such a lovely, genuine person just by the tone of his voice? There is no actor that could fake that, in my opinion. So where to now? Joe's lawyers have petitioned for his case to be heard in the Supreme Court. So this is another case that I will be monitoring. For me, this is yet another case of someone who appears to be innocent, who had to endure a very long prison term. You know, years ago, I was totally naive to think that the court system was designed to make the right judgments. But time after time, we have seen that it's not the case. I used to be in favour of the death penalty, but now I've changed my mind. When I watched Joe give interviews, he just came across as so genuine. And it's totally beyond me how he took the whole thing so well. But one thing that leaves me with an incomplete feeling with this story is that I really wasn't able to find much information about Mickey. 
I wanted to know more about her and what people said about her, perhaps about the funeral, but I really wasn't able to find anything. But I understand that every everything written about the story is about Joe's wrong conviction, but it would have been good to be able to honour Mickey's memory. So that's the end of that crazy story, and I really look forward to finding out more that I can tell you about in an upcoming episode. So now let's look at the next episode. It's called Aladdin's Cave. A group of high school students went on an excursion through a cave system. And to finish, I will leave you with this quote. Becoming a teacher means losing your mind, but also finding your heart and soul. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.